Hello and welcome to Take My Advice. I'm not using it. This is the second of a three-part special in which I recall the most recent future work-life newsletters. If you're enjoying this series, please subscribe to the podcast. So straight into it, the first newsletter is Future Work Life number 34, and it's titled The Future of the Office Looks Like Market Day in Abergavenny. It's from February 28th, 2021. Things are looking up in the UK this week. There are signs of spring in the air. The sun is shining, flowers are beginning to emerge, and the days are getting longer. Best of all, the kids are back at school in a week. Hurrah! Yes, I'm tentatively optimistic about the coming months. With that, my thoughts turn to market day in Abergavenny. With the farmers herding the cows into the square, the smell of manure tickling the nostrils, the sound of laughter and of tankards clinking as the pubs reopen to joyous celebration from friends who haven't seen each other in over a year. Why this strangely 19th century view of a place I've never visited? Well, after spending some time with Rory Sutherland the other day, this image was locked in my mind as we envisaged the future of the office, and he compared it to the journey his grandfather took from their farm in the Welsh borders to their nearest town each week. While Market Day was ostensibly the driving force behind the local agrarian economy, it was just as much an opportunity for people working in isolation to congregate, share stories, and build connections. I quote... I'd have days dedicated to serendipity where you go into London and you literally talk to your staff. You wander around the office and network slightly furiously, which is exactly how my grandfather treated Abergavenny. On market day, he went in and met as many people as he could and then spent the remaining six days on a farm. Okay, actually, to be honest, I think he went to the Conservative Club for a few pints a little more frequently than that. But nonetheless, that's how market day worked. Historically, Mono Street in Monmouth, which is where the market took place in the late 19th century, had 25 pubs in a single street. And what those pubs were facilitating was heavy levels of boozing in an age before drink driving restrictions because your horse would take you home. But it was really there for the serendipitous networking. That was a huge source of information exchange. End quote. After the government announced their roadmap back to normal life this week, there followed, of course, a slew of articles pontificating about whether we even need to return to offices at all. Coincidentally or not, there were more announcements from large employers like Lloyd's and HSBC about reducing commercial office space by 20% and 40% respectively, making it pretty clear that there's no expectation for many people to return to the office full-time. All of which makes sense. Studies by work after lockdown and understanding society after COVID-19 show very similar data about people's appetite for a shift back to working in the office. Very few want to return full-time, around 13% of those surveyed. But three-quarters insist that a hybrid approach is right for them, some time in the office and some at home. Therefore, the big question is, if we return to the office, what should we do there? Or another way to frame it, perhaps, is what can we do in person that we can't do over a video call? The answer to that second question would be, I suspect, a lot shorter now than a year ago. We've realised that much of the work we've always done at work, a phrase which used to mean in the office, we can do entirely satisfactorily anywhere. For many, removing the distraction of open plan offices and needy colleagues tapping you on the shoulder throughout the day has led to improved productivity. Yet what's equally clear according to recent surveys and anecdotally from the many conversations I've had with employers and employees, there's undoubtedly a yearning among people for social connection. After a year of near total remote work for knowledge workers, talk of collaboration immediately evokes thoughts of Teams, Slack or a thousand other tools. Within successful Teams though, the medium of communication is less important than the manner. As Sandy Pentland, MIT professor and entrepreneur wrote in his book, Social Physics, How Good Ideas Spread, the lessons from a new science. He and his team ran extensive tests with businesses in which they equipped every member of cross-functional teams with electronic badges, collecting detailed data about how they communicated. 
They found that, with remarkable consistency, the data confirmed that communication indeed plays a critical role in building successful teams. In fact, we found patterns of communication to be the most important predictor of a team's success. Not only that, but they are as significant as all the other factors, individual intelligence, personality, skill, and the substance of discussions combined. All of which is a rather long-winded way of saying, let's take this opportunity to think differently about face-to-face work, to redesign jobs, workspaces, and workflow. As has been written extensively, an emphasis on collaboration is essential. After all, what's the point of all commuting somewhere to sit and answer emails and do the same meetings we could have done in our pants at home? The first step is to consider what you can do in person that you can't replicate virtually. Pentland has shown that while video conferencing is a passable substitute for face-to-face meetings between very few people, the higher the number on a call, the less effective it becomes. Can you therefore shift those larger team and company meetings to the day you're all together? How can you balance the level of engagement more evenly across the team and optimise for high-energy communication, a marker of top-performing organisations? Finally, how can you create a culture that emphasises the intra-team exploration of ideas? Achieving this doesn't necessarily mean a few Friday night beers. Pentland's work with one business showed that a random change to the canteen layout proved far more effective. After they made one of the dining room tables longer, groups from different teams inadvertently mixed more, which had a hugely positive impact on communication. The point here is that the best solution is not always immediately apparent. We need to be more radical than just saying, let's collaborate more by all turning up in the office on the same day. Returning to the theme of last week's newsletter, Pentland writes in Social Physics, and I quote, the most consistent, creative and insightful people are explorers. They spend an enormous amount of time seeking out new people and different ideas without necessarily trying very hard to find the best people or best ideas. Instead, they seek out people with different views and different ideas. Plus, as Rory Sutherland would say, remember, if you never do anything differently, you'll reduce your chances of enjoying lucky accidents. As you know, I'm an advocate for a shorter working week, so I'll leave you with an idea. There's been a great deal of interest in the four-day working week recently, but it remains a radical notion to many. As an experiment, how about we stick to four days of normal work and then create a short day designed purely for collaboration and social interaction between different teams and all levels of the business? The day's format could vary between meetings and workshops designed to solve specific problems and unstructured mix zones for random conversations and potential moments of serendipity. At worst, it would give us all the social connections we're yearning for while contributing towards a collaborative knowledge-sharing culture. At best, it would trigger a new wave of innovation and creativity. As Sandy Pendler says, the right sort of idea flow leads to all of the group members making better decisions than they could have made if they were operating individually. As a consequence of these shared habits, human communities can develop a sort of collective intelligence that is greater than the members' individual intelligence. It's the progression of ideas that define culture. So let's design a new way of working that improves the flow of ideas, much like Market Day in Abergavenny. Future Work Life number 35, time to start pacing yourself from March the 11th, 2021. Before Elliot Kipchoge attempted breaking the two-hour marathon barrier in 2017, most experts and observers didn't consider the feat possible. As it turned out, while he didn't break the record on that occasion, albeit running significantly faster than the official world record of the distance, in Vienna two years later, he achieved the impossible. Kipchoge's run shattered any notion that the time was beyond human capacity. However, it didn't enter the record books primarily because of the rotating team of 35 pacemakers 
seven of whom formed at all times a V-shape in front of Kipchoge to shield him from the wind. Ahead of them was a pace car, displaying the projected finish time based on their current speed and a laser to guide them. Being no doubt that Kipchoge is a remarkable athlete, combining incredible natural ability with the support of everything from Nike's development of groundbreaking running shoes to the very best nutrition experts. With such fine margins involved in elite running though, he wouldn't have been able to run sub two hours without the right pacing. Anyone who's competed in any endurance activity will recognise, of course, the value of pacing yourself. You wouldn't attempt to complete a marathon by running flat out from the beginning. Instead, you carefully assess the distance and tailor your pace. Firstly, to ensure you'll make it the whole way, while giving yourself the best chance to complete the race in the lowest possible time. It's a delicate balance. As we approach the anniversary of first entering lockdown, the marathon analogy is obvious. As Alex Hutchinson, my guest on Take My Advice, wrote about in an excellent piece last October. The big difference in this case is that there's never been a finish line on which to focus. In sports science, there is actually a subfield that explores what happens physiologically and psychologically when there's no defined endpoint. It's called teleoanticipation. According to Hutchinson, the good news is that letting go of your illusions might actually help. In studies where, instead of racing, volunteers were asked to run or cycle at a pre-assigned pace, with or without being told how long they'd have to maintain that pace, those with no knowledge of the endpoint showed a lower heart rate and reported a lower subjective perception of effort. Their brain activity also shifted away from high-energy executive function regions to the more restful default network associated with daydreaming. When we're settling in for the long haul, in other words, our bodies and minds make appropriate adjustments. To put this in context... Consider the work of Dr. Emily Balsentis, Professor of Social Psychology at New York University and author of Clear, Closer, Better, How Successful People See the World. She specialises in vision science, the study of how people process and perceive visual information. Balsentis has demonstrated the benefits that narrowing your focus of attention on a finish line can have, by which I mean both literally looking at it with your real eyes, but in this case, seeing it through your mind's eye. Having an endpoint in view makes goals more attainable and boosts your psychology to such an extent that confidence increases and your body begins preparing physiologically for the challenge ahead, not an insignificant effect in other words. Call me an optimist if you like, but this is why I consider now the time to be thinking about pacing in your life. While the exact date isn't yet clear, it certainly feels like we've turned a corner and can look forward to a future in which our movement and progress is no longer restricted. We can envisage an endpoint. Of course, top athletes apply the concept of pacing to preparation as well as racing. Their whole training regime is a careful balance of strain and recovery designed to give them the best opportunity to peak at particular points in a season or in the case of the Olympics over a four-year cycle. Get it wrong within a race and you can run the risk of what in cycling is rather bizarrely known as bonking or if you prefer, hitting the wall. Over a season, overwork can lead to peaking too soon and lacking the endurance to stay the course something of which Argentinian football coach Marcelo Bielsa's teams are often accused. Let's consider how this relates to the world of work for a moment. If we were to design our ideal training regime, would it include staring into a screen for hours on end, day after day? Would we work flat out every day, only taking the odd week off at random times throughout the year? Well, here's an anecdote that gives a clue to the answer to that first question. Sports scientist Samuel Marcora is a leading expert on the link between physical and mental capacity and performance and has created a test for brain endurance training. Alex Hutchinson took the test to measure its effect on his training. While the research suggests it can help reduce mental fatigue and perception of effort, I'm more interested in the short-term impact. 
following several hours concentrating on the screen, flashing up a series of a clockwork orange style images. Guess what? Alex was exhausted and his physical and cognitive performance diminished. Sounds like a day of Zoom meetings to me. From the perspective of high performance at work, we massively underestimate the value of pacing. For many, there's little consideration of how to plan the best structure for the working day to optimise for the peaks, let alone considering this over a longer time horizon. What might this look like in practice? During the average week, we may need to prioritise key client presentations, writing a new white paper, or training a group of new recruits. Instead of just cramming these vital activities randomly into your calendar, plan around them. Ensure you don't have hours of video calls throughout the day beforehand and give yourself ample time just before the session starts to compose your thoughts and focus. While work usually isn't as predictable as the sporting calendar, most people can identify their busier times throughout the year in advance, so incorporate this into your planning. Allow time to balance these periods of intense work with more rest, perhaps even scheduling a holiday or a few days off immediately afterwards. As I've written before, there's no glory in overwork and burnout. It's time we take a leaf out of the Sporting Elite's book and begin incorporating considered pacing into our work lives. Thanks for listening. See you next week.